Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarisation of our communities and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? Have you ever thought about the art of history? Not the history of art, but how history itself is painted to tell us about the past, to document historical events, people and movement, power and conflict, control and beliefs, to tell us how to understand our lives, our identity and the world today. How history is painted and told in any form can include propaganda, fact, fiction, embellishment and absence. But who has told and been able to tell their histories? Currently in the UK, we have a significant news story in education that spotlights the importance of history, how and what is told, investigated or re-examined and by whom. My guest today is Professor Hakim Adi, the first British person of African heritage to become a professor of history in the UK. In 2015, he was appointed Professor of the History of Africa and the African Diaspora at the University of Chichester, and he's just been shortlisted for the Wolfson History Prize for his book published in 2022, entitled African and Caribbean People in Britain, A History. The Wolfson Prize is the UK's most prestigious history prize. It recognises and celebrates books which combine excellence in research with readability. Here comes the strange part. At Chichester University, Professor Addy's course was recently axed without consultation. Despite being appointed years before this particular course, he was also made redundant. He is internationally recognised as an expert in the history of Africa and the African diaspora, and it's an honour to talk to him today. Hello, Professor Hakim Adi. Well, good day to you. How are you doing? Very, very well. I'm I'm absolutely delighted you could make time to talk to me and at such an important uh, time and, and probably such a disruptive time for you. So thank you again. You're very welcome. Very welcome. So... I wonder what history will have to say about a British university terminating the post of a leading expert in African history and the African diaspora. What do you think history may say? Well, I don't think history will treat that particular university very kindly, to be honest. I mean, but as you've indicated in your introduction, it rather depends who writes the history. Um. There, from the, I think the overall picture, probably all historians would agree that one of the problems which the University of Chichester and many other universities in the country uh, suffer from is a lack of funding, a lack of central government funding, 
In other words, there's not sufficient investment in higher education. Everybody agrees about that. But then uh, in those circumstances is a question of what universities do. And in the case of the University of Chichester, yes, they've done what you've said they've done. They've left 16 black postgraduate history students, probably the largest cohort of black postgraduate history students in the country without a supervisor, completely disrupted their studies, left them suffering from all kind of, uh, you know, mental anguish and so on. That That is really the the disaster which they've created. Um, and they've obviously closed a course which despite the propaganda of the university itself, was unique in the country. The, the only course which allowed, only degree course in the country on the history of Africa and the African diaspora, and certainly the only course at master's level, which provided a, a conduit, a pipeline to encourage especially black students to, to engage with history and to study history to such an extent that it produced in just a few years, seven PhD students, six of them at the University of Chichester itself. So that that conduit, that that avenue of access has been cut off for future students. And so at the moment in Britain, there are no courses which deal with the history of Africa and the African diaspora. There are no courses which deal with, no degree courses which deal with the history of African and Caribbean people in Britain. No courses at degree level which encourage students of African and Caribbean heritage or any heritage for that matter uh, to look at this important aspect of, of British history and of world history. And I think that is uh, a disaster, really. I think the other thing to say is without going in, without blowing my own trumpet at all or trying not to as best I can, um, you know, the, the education system in this country has trained me. I'm, I'm actually still the only professor of African heritage in this country who's been through the entire education system from an infant school, <laughs> primary school, secondary school, undergraduate, postgraduate. The taxpayer have trained me for many, many years uh, to produce whatever I am today. And you could say, I suppose, with the, the shortlisting, I'm at the sort of height of my powers, such as they are. And, you know, I've been uh, sort of placed on the, not exactly the scrap heap of history, but anyway, I've, been, I've been placed uh, as being un, un, unneeded, unuseful, and so on. And yeah. the very time when, you know, people are saying, you know, they're not enough black professors and not enough black historians that people need young people need role models all these kinds of things so the whole thing is is kind of disastrous in every um aspect every, every way you look at it so that's how i think that history will judge yeah absolutely i mean there are alarm bells all over this and a very obvious question uh, which i'm sure you've raised yourself is how does cutting your course and your post of such significance speak to the university's policy on equality, diversity, and inclusion? 
Well, it, what it shows, what it demonstrates is that the, whatever policy the university has is meaningless. I mean, that's what it shows. Um, and in fact, uh, that's exactly the point I put to the, the person at the, the university who's responsible for that policy. And he admitted that he could, not only he could say nothing to me, but he could do nothing for me. So I said, well, then the policy is useless. And so that's that's the long and the short of it. I think the other thing to say about this university is that uh, in 2016, it, it carried out its own audit of all of these issues of EDI and so on. A report was produced by two external assessors, and that report has been hidden, suppressed, ever since, never implemented. So I think that tells you everything you need to know about EDI at the University of Chichester. Yeah, it's really shocking. And I think in general, and certainly my experience um, in the creative industries and also freelancing in and out of higher education, um, there is too much of a superficial exercise where we talk about diversity and inclusion and too much um, box ticking. Um, I wonder actually whether, particularly for listeners, uh, uh, I'm lucky enough to have international listeners, and in fact, the majority are based in uh, the United States of America. So for context, if I just share some headlines of what's happening in the UK uh, from an arts and humanities point of view. Um, These headlines um, really point to the fact that arts and humanities have pretty much been under attack in the UK for over a decade. In fact, £860 million has been stripped out of annual council spending on arts and culture over the last decade. Brexit in 2020 has taken away numerous European rights and opportunities from UK citizens, but importantly, including that open door to arts and culture exchange. The COVID pandemic has hit arts and culture particularly hard from 2020. And in 2021 for 2022, The Office for Students confirmed subjects, and I quote, not related to medicine or healthcare or specific labour needs, were subject to significant reductions in funding. And this amounted to a 50% cut to art subjects at universities, with labour needs remaining debatable. So I just wanted to share these headlines as context for the listeners and for what's happening to you. And I'm wondering what you've witnessed over this last decade in terms of political pressure on the education system and notably arts and humanities. Well, there there is, as I mentioned earlier, the the general reduction in funding for higher education. I mean, that's um, obvious in, in numerous ways. I think the other thing which we've seen very recently and particularly since 2020 is the the battle over history has intensified leaving aside humanities i mean humanities in general one could say but i think particularly history um because 2020 was the year of uh black lives matter amongst other things and it was a time when perhaps 
people in the US may not understand, or even in other countries may not understand, that in Britain there were unprecedented demonstrations from, as we would say, from Land's End to John O'Groats. In other words, in all corners of the country, places and no one's even, even heard of <laughs> outside of those places. People held demonstrations uh, or local events really of a, an anti-racist character in an unprecedented way that we haven't seen in the country since you know the 19th century or maybe the 18th century, demonstrating that in general people were have had enough that you know they were, as far as racism was concerned, whatever form that took, whether it was state racism, state violence against people, um, these matters were raised. Obviously, in the aftermath of the um, killing of George Floyd in the US, but people in Britain said, look, this is also a problem in Britain. And there, there were many examples that were given. In the course of that, that campaign of anti-racism, uh, two significant things happened. One is that many young people talked about history and said they were fed up that, particularly young black people, but others as well, that they were fed up with this Eurocentric rendering of history which excluded them, excluded young black people. They never saw themselves. The only thing they ever heard relating to Africa and Africans was about slavery and enslavement and so on. And so that's one thing that happened. The other thing that happened, which is perhaps even more significant, is that people at large began to, not to question, but to take action over the public glorification of racism, the public glorification of various criminals who were engaged in crimes against humanity, enslaving other people and so on. And the most notable of those was the one that took place in, in Bristol, with the removal of a public statue of one of those criminals. Uh, Edward Colston, I believe. In, oh, there's some such name, yes. In isn't 2020, there? yeah. The name is not important. Uh, so many of these criminals. Yeah. But the, the, the point being that in that uh, incident, the citizens of that city, who for many years had tried to remove that public glorification, uh, and had been rebuffed by the powers that be repeatedly, decided well, enough was enough, and they removed it and threw it into the, the docks and so on. And you might think that, that would lead to sort of public rejoicing generally that such a, a democratic and public-spirited act had taken place. But amongst the powers that be, the government in particular, there was an outcry and... It, it encouraged, if that's the right word, a kind of assault on history in particular. The idea that, you know, people wanted to rewrite history, that people were attacking the, the heritage of Britain, that people were always saying negative things. A whole range of things were said by government ministers, by various uh, right-wing think tanks in the country and so on. And that I mean, there have been many other examples, but this is the most obvious example. And so I think that history in particular has been very much under the, the spotlight. If you go to the so-called think tank, Policy Institute, uh, they have a whole website 
geared to examining how people are allegedly rewriting history and so on, by which they mean people who people are now uh, more openly complaining about this public glorification of uh, criminality in one, one sort or another. People are refusing to accept that history should only be presented from the perspective of the white men of property and so on. So I think in that sense, uh, there has been a renewed attack on history, although that attack from the powers that be has always existed. There's always been an attempt to, as I say, present history from the perspective of the white men of property and exclude everybody else. The most famous example being when Michael Goh was education secretary and tried to develop a whole history curriculum for schools that only glorified the white men of property, which excluded women, excluding working people, excluding people of African, Asian, Caribbean heritage and so on. So this is an ongoing problem, but I think it's intensified in the last few years. And so we can say that what has happened uh, more recently to me has to be placed in that context, as well as in the context of the prime minister of this country and others, essentially saying that some degrees are more important than others. And essentially, as you indicated in your earlier remarks, those degrees which are related to business, which enhance business, which increase the profits of business, those are important subjects. And those subjects which are claimed uh, not to enhance the profits of big business are seen as being unimportant. So I think that's the kind of context for a whole range of things which are going on in higher education and beyond, because we have to remember this approach to humanities and to history in particular also exists in schools. It's becoming increasingly difficult, really, for many young people to actually study history in schools, particularly to study at GCSE and A-level. People are put off it. It's been made more difficult. It's more difficult to teach the curriculums often that teachers want in the new academies, which is how basically privately run secondary education in this country. So there are lots of different attacks which are uh, being undertaken on history in particular. I won't say humanities and the arts because I know less about those, but particularly on particularly on history. Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, however, uh, the arts are notably being ripped out of uh, the school education system um, as well as uh, higher education. So choices are being denied. And a really vital purpose of your work has also been in terms of combating racism and through transformative education and how that fights the legacy of racism. And I wondered if you could talk about that um, uh, just to help the listeners understand what you mean by transformative education and is it happening, particularly in view of your news? Well, I mean, the idea of transformative education, I mean, it's, it's a long history. It, it was been, it was raised particularly this year by the, actually by the, by the UN, by the United Nations, uh, in the commemoration of uh, transatlantic uh, enslavement and human trafficking, the, 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 the importance of using education, transformative education to to deal with the legacy of these crimes. So the 
one of the key legacies of the crimes of human trafficking, colonialism, and so on, is the racism which exists in society today, in, mo- in most societies today. And so there's the need for an education that can can deal with that legacy. And w- one of the, I suppose, the key things about such education is that it we need to just speak the truth. We need to present the facts to people, if you like, of history and tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, as it were, just to present history in its in its correct context and so that people can understand what happened and so on. And uh, to, just to give an example, um, you know, transformative education can be, you know, can be presented in, in many forms. But just to give a, give an example and, a, and an anecdote I often, I often tell, so I'll tell it to you, um, many, actually not that many years ago, about, where are we now? About, actually it is quite a long time ago, <laughs> 2000, around about 2000 and, or 2007, 2007, what's that, 16 years ago, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's crept on. <laughs> it is crept on, I don't know what's, what's happened, yeah. Uh, we, in Britain, there was the the celebration, if that's the right word, commemoration of the parliamentary abolition of human trafficking, which happened in 1807. Uh, without going into that history in detail for the moment, I remember talking to a young teacher and uh, talking about abolition and human trafficking and all this kind of thing. And, you know, she was bemoaning the fact that, you know, in her history class, she had to teach these kind of things. And she was saying, oh, you know, it's so, so, so difficult to teach you know, this kind of history. So I said, well, why, why, why is that? What's difficult about it? She said, oh, well, you know, she said, it's, uh, you know, it's a very, uh, you know, kind of traumatic subject to teach. I said, really? Why, why is that then? She said, well, you know, she said, my ancestors, you know, were probably, you know, uh, enslaving people. And, you know, I feel so guilty and I find it all very difficult and so on and so on. So I said, look, it's more likely that your ancestors you know, in the 18th century, were more likely to be campaigning against human trafficking. Uh, you know, they were probably boycotting the consumption of sugar in their tea and coffee. They were probably signing petitions because that's what millions of people in this country were doing. Those who were enslaving people and kidnapping people were a handful of people. And certainly those who, who owned and actually did the trafficking, uh, who owned enslaved people, owned plantations, who were, you know, engaged in the, uh, you know, exploitation of people were a small handful of people. So the point of this story is that if people don't actually understand history, and this was a history teacher, then it creates so much confusion about everything. You, You can't actually... You don't really understand what's going on in society. You don't know your own place in society. And so that leads to all kinds of problems. And one can think of there are many other examples one can give. And the powers that be often create this kind of disinformation and confusion about everything. Um, but so what we need people to understand is, just to give this, to, to end this example, look, in the 18th century, there's this massive movement of people in Britain, probably the biggest mass movement in Britain's history, to end human trafficking, to end the slave trade, as it was called. Millions of people, working people, women, 
you know, even children took part in this movement when they didn't have political rights of their own, but they were engaged in this movement until the government effectively suppressed it and so on. So if we actually, and nobody teaches anything about it, nobody talks about it, it's a kind of hidden part of Britain's history, but it, it, it actually shows us something very important about the history of Britain and its traditions and so on. And so far from doing what the powers that be often accuse people of doing, of, of rubbishing Britain and attacking everything in Britain, actually you want, what you want to do is actually present uh, the truth. <laughs> the truth often reveals very positive things that should be celebrated. Uh, but yet nobody nobody celebrates them. And it can be transformative because people are, you know, empowered. They feel, oh, you know, this is my tradition. This is, you know, this is what um, this is what our tradition is in Britain. This is our culture. This is our history. Not people feeling guilty about the past, which you feel guilty, it stops you doing anything. You know, you don't even want to talk about these things. So that's one way it can be uh, transformative. The other thing is that, Understanding this history also shows us that essentially the history is about change. You know, history is really the study of change. And it, what it shows us is nothing remains the same and that human beings are the agents of that change. And once you understand that, that's also very empowering because you think, oh, really? Well, I can change anything. I can change the situation, that situation. And, of course, that's very important because it's – also directly in opposition to the kind of presentation of history of the white men of property, which is that there are a few white men of property who are heroes who do everything, they're kings and they're generals and they're politics or whatever. And they're the ones who change things and just leave everything to them and everything will be fine. So the, the truth of history is quite the opposite of that. And so understanding the role that we play as the agents of change, as the makers of history, is also very important and very transformative. And uh, of course, this year, the or every year, the day that's chosen for the commemoration of the abolition of slavery um, is the the twenty second, twenty third of August, which is the the night and morning in which or on which began the famous Haitian Revolution in seventeen ninety one, and that example should inspire everybody because you know half a million people enslaved who had a life expectancy of seven years on average rose up defeated the three principal armies of europe the french the spanish and the british fought for you know over a decade liberated their country i mean so these this type of history is transformative and you know, the Haitian Revolution was transformative, not just in Haiti, but in Britain too. You know, people like William Wordsworth, you know, wrote these poems about Toussaint Louverture, the leader of the revolution. It inspired people, working people in this country. You know, if these Africans in Haiti can liberate themselves, so can we. And so this is a kind of history that we, an education that we need. Yeah, and and this emphasis on transformative history is such an important opportunity, isn't it, to be able to respect hidden histories, respect these gigantic stories that were great 
positive acts that were either fighting for human rights or how people liberated themselves. In your example of the Haitian Revolution um, is so significant, not a whisper, not a whisper of that in my history class. I think we were lumbered with the Industrial Revolution. And even within that context, no sense of positive political struggle for workers' rights from the working class, for example. So your example to the to the history teacher uh, you were talking to who was who was riddled with guilt. This is such an important example, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah identities can be raised positively. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to look at you know some of the the key figures in that. Even in the 18th century, you know, have people like you know Thomas Spence, who was one of the leaders of the. London Corresponding Society, which is one of the sort of radical organizations of that time, demanding rights for ordinary people. And he writes to somebody, and he's been given this person's details by a very famous African called Alado Equiano, who was a, an abolitionist, we can say, a, a formerly enslaved person who freed himself and then became an important abolitionist here. And Equiano lived with Thomas Spence in his house. So Thomas Spence writes to this man and he says, you know, I've been uh, given your details by Equiano. And he says, I understand that you are, uh, I can't, I'm just paraphrasing what he says, he says, I understand that you're a, a, an opponent of, you know, the enslavement of Africans. He says, I assume from that that you're also a, a supporter of the, the rights of man, as it was called at that time, in other words, human rights. And he says, uh, you know, it's my view that if you're for the rights of uh, black men, you must also be for the rights of white men and vice versa. So this is a very profound political conception, leaving aside to use the word men in those days and so on. But meaning that if you're for the rights of one section of the population, then you must be for the rights of every other section. You must be for the rights of all. So even in the 21st century, some people haven't grasped this principle that was already being established and enunciated in the 18th century from within this very, very important movement of working people against human trafficking. So... We can we can learn so much, and as you say, it's transformative. It's inspiring. It's it can also be it can tell us something about the, the crimes of history as well. The Industrial Revolution is full of crimes against the working people. It's not just a kind of glorious transition from one state to another, because in that process, of the Industrial Revolution, the working people had no rights and had to fight for them. You know, whether that's how many hours a day they worked or whether children should work down mines or whether working people should have the vote and all these kind of things. And they're, they're important that we understand the kind of human dimensions of all of these things. But as you say, people usually learn the Industrial Revolution or they might learn the French Revolution or they might learn something about the American Revolution. But why doesn't nobody learn about the Haitian Revolution? What's... <laughs> which is yeah, probably. yeah. When it when it's so incredibly outstanding, um, and which I've only learned from watching uh, some of your online seminars, um, you know that uh, thirteen years of struggle, uh, the only successful revolution of enslaved people, and and it's absent in our history lessons. 
And the respect for that level of outstanding courage and the significance of struggle is absent. And it kind of harks back to these current alarm bells, doesn't it? Why are these examples absent? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, it's interesting that at the time, people like Adam Smith, you know, the famous political economist who various, I think, people have adopted, people are connected with the Conservative Party and so on have adopted Adam Smith. And he talked about the people of Haiti as heroes, didn't he? And said that, you know, they're like, it's like a country of heroes. And, so, and many other people of the day. Uh, celebrated the Haitian Revolution. I mentioned William Wordsworth, and there, there are many others. Um, so, yeah, why should why should people not know about it? What what's the the harm in letting people know about it? And when people know about that, then they can understand, for example, why abolition took place in, in the British Parliament in 1807. Because otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. You know, why should Britain, the, the world's leading human trafficker, in the 18th century, seven years into the 19th century, suddenly said, no, we want to stop all of that and um, become the you know champion of abolition and so on. You have to have an explanation for it. And the main factor which explains it is the, the Haitian Revolution without going into all the, all the details. So just presenting history in its entirety is so important and gives as i say gives people a way of understanding the world in which they live which is which is why the powers that be do their best to create confusion and so on and we see it all the time that i remember just a few years ago with the centenary of the the first world war the great war all the major politicians boris johnson's now it's all came out spewing their nonsense about the first world war you know it's the beastly germans it's all their fault it was all about saving poor little belgium it was saving western civilization i mean it's all nonsense (laughs) it's complete rubbish and anybody who studied it and actually knows that it's you know it's actually about dividing the world between the big powers. I mean, that's what it was about. And people at the time who um, spoke the truth about it, that's what, that's what they said. And, you know, if you – so why, why do you want to confuse people about it? Mm. And it's this absence of history which is so oppressive. And, in fact, just referring to World War One, I'm sure you probably saw – the work of uh, the Labour MP, uh, David Lammy, um, in, in terms of a television documentary, he was foregrounding the fact that hundreds of thousands of black African soldiers who had fought in World War I have unmarked graves and it's more than oppression. In Lammy's words, it's apartheid. Yeah, I mean, there, there are numerous examples of, uh, you know, not only unmarked graves, that people were not, uh, those who fought, especially from from African, Caribbean, or even South Asian regiments and detachments, were not honoured after the war and the, the, you know, the victory celebrations have been excluded from, you know, the concerns of those connected with War Graves Commission have been excluded from their names not mentioned on monuments. So I mean, it goes on and on and on, apart from how people were treated at the time, uh, 
Um, you know, some of those who fought, uh, especially black troops who were, were here, were later deported, and anyway, there were a whole range of things one could, you know, talk about. Leaving aside most, perhaps the most important thing, the racism that existed in the British Army at the time, um, you know, uh, which which operated a colour bar. Um, you know, there are so many things, and obviously, people were often conscripted against their will, especially in African countries where people were not only conscripted as soldiers but also as porters and as construction workers. I mean, literally millions of people. Um, leading to, you know, actually significant uprisings and an uprising in what is today Malawi, led by John Chilembwe, was actually executed for rising up against the colonial authorities and saying this war's got nothing to do with us, people shouldn't be, you know, recruited and so on. So one could go on and on and on talking about the nature of the war. And if you actually look at the history of it, the first shots or some of the first shots in that war were fired in Africa and some of the last shots were fired in Africa. Um, and yet at the end of the war, Africa was redivided amongst the big powers. You know, the victors, Britain and France, uh, stole, if you can use that word, the, the colonies of the defeated powers such as Germany. They entered into all kinds of secret agreements between themselves to divide up those African countries that were still independent, like Ethiopia, I mean, all kinds of, uh, leaving aside the whole question of Palestine, mm, yeah. <laughs> which also emerges, you could say, after the war and after the anyway, so-called Balfour Declaration and all these kinds of things. So there's all kinds of things that are important to understand about this war. And the idea that it's something about saving poor little Belgium, I mean, the, when you think that the king of Belgium had just been responsible for the the murder of 10 million Africans in the Congo, I mean, the idea that you're saving Belgium is just so offensive, <laughs> apart from being completely untrue. Mm. Um, but these are the kind of things that are, are said and why history is important and under, having some understanding of it, um, you know, is, is so important. Yeah, and the... Legacy, when we think about the legacy of racism and how how deeply felt that still is today, it's all the more shocking, isn't it, that when you look at what's absent in history, the degree of outstanding acts and yet the disrespect to deny the respect of those stories, be it African soldiers fighting, be it uh, freedom fighters, for example, this all feeds into the legacy of racism today, doesn't it? Yes, I mean, of course it does. And I mean, I, the biggest sort of aspect of that is the idea that, that Africa has no history. And I mean, we see that continually reinforced by you know, some of the key, you know, kind of leaders of, you know, European philosophy, um, you know, Locke and Hume in this country, uh, Hegel, um, you know, I mean, all these people have this kind of view, Africa has no history. And then we have recent examples, don't you, the president of France, Sarkozy, saying that nothing ever changes in Africa and all this kind of thing. You know, Boris Johnson, 
saying, uh, you know, the part of the reason that we were there, or the problem is we're no longer there, and all these. I mean, all these kinds of things which reduce Africa and Africans as if uh, Africa and Africans are apart from the rest of human beings. And I'm just using Africa as an example. There obviously there are other examples. This Eurocentrism, this racism, which creates the conditions then for other things which go on in society. And whether that's the, you know, Windrush, so-called Windrush scandal, or it's the way that the the police operate um, against the, you know, young black people, or whether it's, uh, you know, I mean, one can go on and on and on. There are numerous examples, the way the immigration laws, nationality acts exist in this country. Um, the way that you know people are treated in in general, this idea that there's some inferiority and superiority amongst human beings uh, is you know kind of bedevils is is endemic we could say in society to such an extent that you know you see at the beginning of still of football matches players kneeling and raising this issue and so on so yes yeah, so. I'm trying to understand that phenomenon because when we say it's it's a legacy, it's it's not as if it's just um, a sort of hangover from the past. It's something which is still perpetuated, that people are still oppressed by that uh, racism uh, in society. And it's not just those who are, you know, the kind of victims of it who are oppressed by it, but everyone's oppressed by it because it creates problems for for everybody, divisions for everybody. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And and equally, um, it's it's interesting when you've talked about the myth of Windrush, because of course 2023 is uh commemorating uh 75 years of what we refer to as Windrush. But of course, your point is is Windrush is kind of being coined as though that's the advent. That's the beginning of black history in Britain. Yeah, I mean, that's the unfortunate thing. And that's not a new idea. That's the an idea that's been around for quite a long time now, um, unfortunately. But it's, it's received a sort of massive um, dose of support in the last few years with, you know, the idea of a, a Windrush Day and people kind of commemorating it and trying to establishing it as a sort of landmark in Britain's history. And it's completely a false notion. And the, the, there are numerous number of aspects to it. I mean, the first one is that, um, you know, why do you pick a boat that came here in 1948 um, just because it was filmed or something? That there were boats that... And even that boat itself um, came to the country before 1948. But there were other boats uh, which brought people from the Caribbean and brought people from Africa, for that matter, and other places before June 1948. So why not celebrate those? Uh, it's just misleading. And then, of course, there's the issue that, as you say, that, you know, people of African heritage were coming to the country, you know, 2,000 years before that. So why do you pick that particular date? And then there's the issue that, you know, if you look at the 
population of Britain today, I mean, you look at the black population of Britain today, or those of African and Caribbean heritage, the, the larger segment of that population, you know, aren't connected with the Caribbean anyway, but are more closely connected with Africa, the African continent, have come directly, or their parents or grandparents. And so you immediately exclude a whole significant population um, from from history as if they're of no consequence and so on. So from every perspective, it, it's it's rather sort of lamentable. Of course, if somebody wants to celebrate a boat, I mean, that's fine. No one can be concerned about anybody celebrating a boat, any boat. People want to do that. But you can't then use that boat as a, a way of explaining or distorting, mythologizing history. That's, I think, what is objectionable and to be countered by trying to explain what's actually the you know the the truth of this thing i think the other thing is that the powers that be celebrate it as if they had you know the the governments of the day at the time were you know kind of welcoming people with open arms and so on when actually the opposite was the case they were doing everything possible to to stop people coming and certainly make sure if they did come that they left as soon as possible and so on. So these are the the facts of things. You know, the idea that people were invited in 1948 to come is completely wrong. Um, That's completely untrue. Um, So, yeah, there are lots of myths which I I don't think are very helpful um, in understanding Britain today or understanding Britain in the past. Yeah, and... As we as we've um, already reflected upon, you know whether it's um, the Haitian Revolution, uh, freedom fighters, those that were brave enough to come over in the Windrush era, but only to uh, be lied to and, and caught up uh, in in that scandal. We're talking about so much courage, and I'm also interested in your personal courage because, as you noted. You know, you have this label, you know, that you're the only British person to have gone through every phase of education in this country, to become a historian of African heritage, teaching African history in this country. But I wonder how lonely, perhaps, has that journey been? Um, I did read, actually, that early on in your career, for example, um, you were only ever invited to speak at conferences if they were in America, Europe, or the Caribbean, but not the UK. I, I didn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm much, much happier to be invited to the Caribbean. <laughs> but that, that, yeah, that sadly is, is actually true. It's changed a bit in recent years. I get do get invited to speak in Britain a bit more now. But yes, there, there definitely was a time when. I was much more likely to be invited to speak outside the country than in it. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't have any explanation for that, particularly. That's just the way it was. And uh, Sorry to interrupt. I was going to say, so what were you drawing upon? Because amongst this huge story, what were you drawing upon to keep going? Because that's asking for personal courage, isn't it? You know, when you may feel isolated, when you may feel that you're always um, 
a person of African heritage who's underrepresented in in the institution or the organisation you, you may be working with. I'm wondering what you you've drawn upon, uh, and also whether your own Nigerian heritage is actively influencing how you've persevered. <laughs> I don't know the answer really to that. I think. Uh... Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I wouldn't say it's uh, you know an easy. It's been an easy journey, and I mean the current circumstances uh, kind of illustrate that very well. Um, because e- even when you you know you kind of climb up the greasy pole and become a professor, and you think that you're doing something worthwhile, and you're trying to, in my case, trying to encourage other people and to provide the the route for other people to become historians or to, to, to study history and so on, um, you know, that is also comes under attack. And, of course, in, in this case, it's not just me that's being attacked, but as I mentioned earlier, all my students and those students yet to come were being attacked. So I think, I think the thing is that you, one learns to, uh, I don't know, just keep going, really. Sometimes it is very difficult. I mean, the the current circumstances are very difficult for me, for the students involved, uh, you know, they're very, very difficult. And I mean, in my own case, I've been there before because I was made redundant (laughs) the last time in whenever it was, about 14 years ago. Uh, So it's not the first time. Um, and yeah, you have to keep starting again. And but the way I look at it is is what is the you know what am I trying to do? What do I think is important to do uh, as a historian um, to to tell a particular kind of story to to teach other people to give you know to to help other people acquire the knowledge that they want or the the knowledge that I have, that's always been my my aim in life. Uh, and so you just try and do it and find some other way of doing it. The last time I was made redundant, I wrote a book. Um, so that was kind of good use of that. I think it was two years I was unemployed then. I wrote a book and that, that had its own challenges. You know, writing books is also challenging. Getting them published is challenging. Keeping a publisher is challenging. Everything about being a historian in my experience is very difficult it's, it's a struggle but in life you know as frederick Douglass said if there's no struggle there's no progress you you have to struggle for things uh, maybe some people don't but generally in life you have to struggle and you just keep going and you know people around you inspire you um just given the present case as example you know we had a people signing petition you know 12,000 people within a few weeks signed a petition saying you know they thought this the MRES was very important many of those 12,000 people wrote comments saying how important it was some of them wrote comments about me supporting me and when you have so many people saying something is important you you keep going you feel you have an obligation to them to, to keep going, um, you know, I feel I have an obligation to my students to keep going, to try and solve the problems that we've been confronted with. And in in the past, similarly, 
you know, just try and keep going, try to to contribute something useful uh, to deal with the, the problems that, that exist. So, yeah, that's how I look at it. I don't think, and as I say, there are people around who encourage and who give you strength. And um, just, just to give one example, in the current circumstances, I went to visit a friend of mine. I was in New York um, over the summer, and I went to visit a friend of mine who's about, she's actually 100 years old. Wow. And I told her what was going on. And she said to me, you, you, you have to fight. She said, never give up. She said, never let anyone attack our history. Um, and without you defending it and so on. So people like that, you know, they say things that you think, well, yeah, you're right. Let's get on with it. However difficult it is, let's keep going. And as I have said to some of my students on this occasion, you have to think about, you know, the people in, in Haiti, for example, in 1791, who were in a much more difficult situation than we're in, um, who kept going for 13 years or whatever it is. So you have to get everything in perspective. Sometimes things are very difficult, very hard, but do they need to be done? Do you need to stand up and, you know, take difficult decisions and uh, just you know, do what you can and you keep going. Yeah, it does feel like we're in a culture war or this last decade with this particular government has amounted to what now feels like a, a real struggle um, in terms of uh, the arts, culture, what's happening in, in education. Um, but also it can give opportunity, can't it? It can give rise to changing those models that are no longer working. I mean, for example, it may be you might want to consider being a touring professor as opposed to a professor that's constrained by the marketing limits of any one institution. Well, yeah, I've, I've never been constrained by that. I never would be. Um, but, yeah, I understand what you mean, so certainly in terms of employment. Um but, you know, I've taught at every level. I've taught in, you know, university, FE college, sixth form centre, school, prison, adult education, you know, wherever. Wherever um, there's a possibility of defending and teaching the history of Africa and those of African heritage, I've always tried to do that. And I will keep doing it, or whether it's presenting a book or making a film or helping young people, um, whatever it is to do with history. I think it's important. It's, it's something, as I say, you have to fight for it. It's, uh, we live in a world where these things don't come easy and there are people who have opposing views um, and want to um, prevent people understanding the world in which we live, want to prevent people understanding their own role in history, want to deny that uh Africa and Africans have a history just like any other part of the world and any other people in the world so there's always going to be that problem and you that's kind of that comes with the territory and you just have to to get on with it and uh yeah find the 
the way of doing it. I mean, it, it, it could be said that it's worse now, but I mean, it's always been, as far as I'm concerned, it's always been a problem and a challenge. Um, and the thing is to find the ways of combating it is not acting alone, is to get other people involved, to organize other people, to find like minds. And that's why we, you know, started the History Matters initiative in 2015, Young Historians Project, the same year, to involve young people and help young people engage with history. Um, and as I say, that is what um, is very inspiring, um, seeing those young people, uh, you know, take up this struggle, take up these challenges and try and find solutions to them. Um, and again, if I can help in encouraging them and finding ways of supporting them, then that's, you know, that's time and energy well spent. So I think collectively together, as I said at the beginning, we can change the situation we're in. So we can't be despondent about whatever's going on at the moment is something temporary and it's in our hands to change it, to transform it. That's really what's what's important about transforming things. We're not just, um, you know, transformative education is that education which helps us transform the situation. And, and in that, history is very important because it's really the subject which as I said, is, is about studying change and understanding change in society. So, as I said, what we understand from history is everything changes. And within our hands to change it. So if we organize ourselves correctly, keep struggling, keep fighting, then we will definitely change the situation from what it is to a, a better situation. So we, we have to have that optimism and, you know, get on with things. Yeah, and that struggle now, it seems, is against this idea of universities moving to uh, what's labelled as generalised courses, um, which just sounds like a complete whitewashing um, of what we can or can't learn. It's a shutting down of curiosity, the value of curiosity, openness, research, learning, exchange, uh, all of that seems to be denied value compared to a direct monetary conversion upon graduation. There seems to be a real loss of ethical value in what education is. Yeah, I think so. I think there's, as I say, there's a sort of a narrowing of education, making education more and more tied to what is required by business, Um you know, limiting education, narrowing its scope, saying some subjects are not important or some aspects of history are not important or not as important as others. Um, you know, the kind of dumbing down in a way of history very often um, or way of excluding people from history or, or, as I say, narrowing its focus and content. And so, yeah, that's that's definitely something to be opposed. As I said earlier, it's been tried for many years, um, or there are attempts to reintroduce it with through people like Michael Gove and others. Uh, many attempts to, to 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 bring it not just to the kind of marketization of education, which is definitely sort of 
going at a you know fast pace um, to basically privatize education and to to gear it even more to the needs of big business and the interests of big business. So that's definitely going on at school and at university level. And, you know, it has to be seen for what it is, that education should serve the needs of the majority of people, what we need. And we need to, you know, we need to understand and study the arts and humanities and a whole range of things, languages and sciences and all the things that we need to be, uh, you could say, useful and educated and enlightened citizens in the 21st century. We need the broadest possible education. Um, and just to give an, an anecdote, when I first joined the University of Chichester, I, I taught a, a course, a module for first-year students on the history of Africa and the African diaspora in the modern world, which looked at, actually started with, the, well, it didn't start with the Haitian Revolution, but it included some African history, some Caribbean history, some uh, US history and British history. And was, as I say, focused on Africa and the African diaspora. And at my first semester at the University of Chichester, that module was voted module of the year by the students. and. The students at the university just at that time and probably still today are predominantly, you know, white students. But what they said was they'd never, this history had never been taught to them before. Wasn't it exciting? Wasn't it interesting? Wasn't it different? Wasn't it, didn't it give a different perspective on the world? And this is what young people need and want. They want to understand things. They want to look at things in the, from a different perspective. They want to broaden their horizons. They want to be enlightened about things. That's the kind of education they need. And unfortunately, that's being very often coming under attack and being, and being denied to them. And everybody should be concerned about that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm conscious of um, time zipping by, but I wondered if I could just ask, or just finish on two further questions. Um, and obviously reflecting on everything we've talked about so far, this particular season is published on World Children's Day, which is November the 20th, led by the United Nations. And of course, you've written history books for children. Why does history matter to children? Well, I think history is, you know, very exciting to children. Um, you know, just looking at people in a different age, in a different period, you know, is very exciting, fascinating, just on that level. I think to, to most kids, I know when I was a child, history was the thing which fascinated me from the age of, you know, four or five, probably, I started reading books about history. I think it's it's fascinating. It kind of takes children to another world and so on. But it also does what history does at any time. It helps you kind of understand the world. Um, I know at a very young age, I kind of understood that, you know, the difference between... I understood that some people were... Uh, trying to exploit other people and that the people who were being exploited were resisting and trying to live a you know a simple life and without being oppressed and uh and that 
you know, had a very profound influence on me. Uh, that was going on in the world, or had gone on in the world, because I was looking, at, you know, looking at it in terms of history. But it, it definitely um, had an influence on me and how I, I suppose, what I, how I saw my my role as a human being in the world. Uh, that was, you know, there were important things to be to be dealt with and to 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 change for the better. And so. I think it is important. I mean, it's also important uh, for young people to see themselves in history. If you're a woman, for example, or you're a girl, young girl, <coughs> when you study history at school or you see it on the TV or something, you never see any women. That has undoubtedly has a very powerful impact on impact on people. Or if you grow up in a society and you never see any people of African heritage presented in history or presented in a positive light. That, along with all the other things that go on in society, that has a tremendous impact on you as well. And so I think, again, having history for kids, which um, shows them that they are important in the world, that people in the, people like them are important in the world, that their identity as women, as uh africans as uh you know working people that they're important that they've done important things uh, or their their ancestors did these are very i think very very important things for how we develop as human beings you know our psyche our sense of identity our sense of worth um you know, it's a bit like these experiments with, you know, whether you 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 uh, reprimand kids or you praise them. You know, I mean, without going into the science of all these things, that so, you know, if you encourage kids, you know, they grow up confident and they, you know, they have higher expectations. And if you're always criticizing kids or you're always, you know, negative towards them and their aspirations, then you know, they grow up in a different way. So imagine how that is then if, in terms of how people are represented, that if you're a girl, you never see any represent, positive representations of women. If you're, you know, a black person, you never see any, anything positive or any inclusion of people who look like you. What does that do to your psyche? And what does it do to the psyche of other people or the minds of other people who never see women who never see black people who never so presenting a history which is inclusive and honest i think is very important in developing the minds and the identities and the understanding of uh, young people in in society and as you said for that reason i'm always very eager to write books for kids that can present you know some of that history they can see people such as themselves or they can see other people you know they have an idea of the diversity of human beings and that all human beings are uh, equal and have contributed important things to human progress and so on and so forth so I think that's very important yeah absolutely and Perhaps would you say, um, to finish on the series question um, that poses a deliberately challenging question, can art save us? Would you say that, in fact, some of those values you've just been 
outlining really speaks to that question, why the arts are so important. Yeah, I think so. I think, again, you know, arts, culture, humanities, history, it's really the presentation of, you know, kind of human values and human beings um, in their, you know, you, you, you want to have, uh, you want young people to grow up in an environment where everybody is valued, where everything is, you know, people have an enlightened view of the world um, and in which people have the opportunity to develop their abilities, their talents, you know, in a, an atmosphere that's conducive to that. So you want young people to be able to, you know, to play music, for example, or to be able to listen to music or to understand that there are different types of music <laughs> and not just different types of music within Britain, but in other countries, there are different ways of you know, having music, for example. You know, that's important. You know, you want young people uh, given the opportunity to, you know, just to use another thing that's dear to me, to be able to play sport. And to learn the various skills of, you know, hand-eye coordination or whatever it might be. Not everybody's good at every sport, but usually people find some enjoyment of a sport and giving people the ability to to try these things, whether it's swimming or whatever it is. I mean, some some sports are also kind of life skills like swimming and so on. So all of these, you want people who are, um, nurtured young people, nurtured, given all the life skills, all the abilities, um, enriched with, you know, the, the arts, the humanities, the sciences, with languages, with everything. The people need to be human and to be the best possible humans they can be in the 21st century. So I think that's the kind of education that we want and need. Education, not just in schools and universities, but in the media, in the home, uh, in the local environment and so on. That, that's what's required in a modern society, in a particular society, in any modern society, but particularly one like one we live in, which is a relatively wealthy one in the world. So much wealth around, and yet people are denied these things. Well, how can you explain that? You have a country that's so wealthy, and yet people don't have access to music or people don't have access to sport or to swimming or to to history or to languages or how is that how can that be explained that can only be a society which is not geared to the interests of the people um, because if a society was geared to the interests of the people all these things would be provided because of course because people want them need them um so i think it's raises questions then about what kind of society do we live in if we're saying these things are not provided um then it must be a society which puts something else in first place um and that's not in our interests um we need to have a society that puts those educational things in first place which puts healthcare in first place which puts the environment in first place and these these kinds of things so i think you know, it raises very important questions that we we have to answer. Absolutely. I, th- I feel like I've um, had the privilege to be part of one of the most 
interesting history lessons I've ever had in my life. And I'm just only delighted that this can be shared as a free to listen podcast that I hope will inspire so many people and on an international basis. I can't thank you enough for your time um, to be able to uh, listen to your expertise, um, your understanding, your willingness to share your knowledge. Um, I really am grateful and I'd like to let the listeners know that on your episode page, um, I will point to your website so people can keep up with your news Follow the positive struggle uh, that you're in and that we can all be in collectively. And I guess the most important thing to say is the arts matter and history matters. Thank you so much for your time today. Very welcome. Anytime. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're such an important voice. Your work is vital. Thank you very much again for joining me today. You're welcome. No problem.